0: beautiful service music wise and your presence here makes it the better thank you for coming to be with us and we look forward to your return visit hope you can come back with us evening service brother michael open the scriptures to us along with acts of pirate young people sharing with us so this is your first time ever at new life we'd be glad to get acquainted with you a bit better and anything we can do around here we'll do it for you nothing around here is for sale we'll give you anything we got if you can use it so if you find something you need just tell us and we'll do our best to put it in your hands I um, mentioned to you, be praying again for uh, uh, Brother Ross Thompson, very important prayer request regarding his uh, leukemia, so please uh, make that a matter of daily prayer, if you will. Again, I you know, send our congratulations to Gary, I believe Betty's over there, building, working and preparing food for our soldiers this, this uh, noon, but uh, they have a, a new creature at their house, they have a daughter-in-law now, They're not actually at their house, but we'll be around that. And so congratulations to Gary and Betty, and you be pleased praying for, for Danny and Bree as they've come to marriage yesterday, and pray for them as they set out their life together. This morning in Romans chapter 9, we begin reading in the first five verses of the text of Romans 9. Paul is the writer. Verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, Paul says, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the Father's, and of whom. As concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. This morning I speak to you on the subject of Paul. I think we have a problem. This passage of Scripture is uh, connected, as it were, and three of these chapters fit together. Chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. And in this, there is without a doubt, as you would read it casually, You'll see that there's a problem here and the problem is that the Apostle Paul is going to address and he does An admirable job of it. In fact, there are 433 verses in the book of Romans 90 of them are dealt with in these three chapters And in those three chapters it is dealing with this problem and the problem relates to the jewish people The jews as a nation as a people And what you have is really the chapters divide I think relatively easy In chapter 9, without a doubt, is one of the great chapters on the sovereignty of God. This is a great chapter on sovereignty, and you need to learn early that God is sovereign, and you don't want to miss that part, that God is definitely sovereign. God does what God wants to do when God wants to do it, and you won't put God in a box. He'll do what He wants to do when He wants to do it, and He'll do it how He wants to do it. So God is sovereign. God can do whatever He wants to do, so don't ever say, God can't this or God couldn't do that. Uh, God can do what He wills, and chapter 9 is an excellent illustration of that. In chapter number 10, you have, and what I call, by the way, Israel's election is in chapter 9. That's what the big subject we will be dealing with. And in chapter number 10 is Israel's rejection. When you come to chapter 10, that's going to become obvious. And what you're going to see in chapter 10 is uh, what we call the other side of the coin, is the moral responsibility of man, how God holds Israel accountable. For what she is to do in regard to his sovereignty and the reaction to it. So I think you'll see that in chapter 10. When you come to chapter number 11 then, and chapter number 11 is an exciting chapter because it comes back to Israel's reception. Israel realizes and, and accepts the fact of what God is doing, and she comes back to realize God's final purpose for the people of Israel. And I find it fascinating that uh, Israel is the only nation on the earth that has a, what we call a complete history she has a past, she has a present, and a future. Uh, on more than one occasion, Scott and I have talked about, and what he's referred to, uh, I believe it was uh, Henry Ford, who calls history bunk. Henry Ford calls history bunk. And if you uh, check in the dictionary, uh, the dictionary will tell you that bunk means nonsense. That's what the word bunk means. So Henry Ford says history doesn't make any sense, has no sense. That may be true in general about history, but when you come to the history of Israel, And when you come to as a believer looking at history and what god is doing i think it makes good sense and let me just show you in a a nutshell about it from this standpoint when you look at history and think first of all back to the very beginning of history you see god and his creation when you come to the cross of christ it is the center of 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 history because you have a a, the two sides of the cross really in, in the sense of the word divide where people will stand in regard to eternity. So there's no doubt about it. It's a sinner. And then when it comes to Christ's return, his return will shut down history. There'll be no more. So he started it. He, as it were, put the centerpiece in it at the cross, and he's going to conclude it when he returns. History will be all done and finished. So consequently, there is substance and there is intelligence in history when it's looked at from God's point of view. He, he's not out here uh, throwing mud pies at rock walls he has a purpose and he has a plan and and uh, the problem is we don't often see it we don't understand it why is he doing this and why did he allow that and uh, that's our finiteness god's infinite and you can't think like god unless you think according to his word when you see what he's doing here you can begin to understand what he's doing but we're too finite and and usually too self-centered i find out that finiteness and self-centeredness go with pretty much hand in hand so technically we look to our own interest instead of what god's up to and what is in this case god's bigger interest but in this chapter in fact these three chapters you're going to see that paul is going to address a problem and it's it's a very obvious problem and, and ways that we prepare for the perception of that problem is first off to remember, remind yourself of this that when paul wrote back over in romans chapter one uh, he he made a declaration as it were in uh, in Romans chapter 1 in verse number 16 he said for i am not ashamed of the gospel of christ for it is the power of god unto salvation to every one that believeth and then he said to the jew first and also to the greek that's in Romans 1:16 a lot of things we could say about that but there's one thing for sure that verse has never changed it's never changed the gospel is still the power of god unto salvation anybody in this room who comes to faith in the lord jesus christ must come by the way of the gospel. And the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And that, according to the scriptures. So anybody who comes to faith in Christ and realizes that Christ died on the cross for their sins, was buried again, and rose again for our sanctification and justification, that person can be born again. And that gospel that need be preached, and that is what need be preached for people to be saved, is just as powerful today as it was when it was written in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. So I say to you this morning, if you're here and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, what you need to understand, receive, and embrace is the Lord Jesus Christ and in the context of the gospel. That Christ died for your sin, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again, and rising again was God the Father's way of saying, what he paid, I accept, and man can now be forgiven and free. That's what it says. It's sort of the receipt for the death of Christ. If you'd had the death of Christ without the resurrection, you would have never gotten a receipt and you could not prove that salvation was final and full. And we have a receipt, and it's in the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts out Romans chapter 1, and he talks about the gospel, and then he says this thing starts out with a presentation to the Jews first. So they heard that, and they knew that, but there was one small problem with that. There was a great deal of uh, of Paul's life that was dealt with the the Gentile people. In fact, if you were to go back over to Acts chapter 9, and when he was on the road to uh, Damascus, and the great light came upon him, and there was an explanation of his mission and his purpose it's an interesting thing there he's told there that he'll go to the gentiles first so here you have paul saying that you know i've been called of god I, when i got converted i was told to go to the gentiles well the jews knew that knew it very well along with a lot of other things that had happened in paul's life they were convinced that paul the apostle was a gentile preacher he was not a jewish preacher they believed and saw him as a gentile preacher so when you come to this passage of scripture the Jews have a problem with it. We've just come out of a great text in chapter 8 where he talks about in verse number 37, Nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was saying we're, we're saved people, we're, we're chosen people. And the jews are saying yeah we're chosen too but there's a small problem here not all the jews are getting saved not all these israelites are born again so what good is it to be chosen and to be said you're not going to ever be separated from god when you got some folks chosen who don't even know god and that's part of what paul's problem is in this text of scripture this whole thing is built on the idea that and by the way in some of your bibles it may say that chapter 19 11 is a parenthesis. It's not a parenthesis. It goes right along with what's in chapter 8. It says over there that saved people cannot be separated from the love of God. The Jews were saying, but wait a minute. How can you say that when when we appear to be rejected? Well, for instance, in the case in point, God's people, Israel, did not receive God's Son. I mean, here you have God's people, Israel, and you have God's Son who comes into the world. And what does John tell us? He came into his own, and what does his own do? Received him not. And so they're saying, hey, a lot of good it does to be chosen. A lot of good it does to be connected to Christ if you can't hang on to him. And I got news for you. You don't hang on to Christ. Christ hangs on to you. And the fact is you're born into God's family. And so what you're going to find in chapter number 9 is the Apostle Paul explaining this problem. He's going to say to you, look, it's correct and absolutely right that you folks are chosen. But he'll say it in his terms. Everybody who's an Israelite is not a true Israelite. That's the secret. You see, just because you were born to Abraham does not get you into heaven. Among our, our, our friends at Camp Atterbury, we have a man by the name of Mike Fisher. He comes to the services often. Mike works generally at the camp. He's an electrician for you fellows who may have met Mike Fisher. Mike Fisher's Jew. He is a Jewish man. And the first time I talked to Mike, I remember the conversation being about the fact that there was a time and a point and a place where there's an illusion to being a son of Abraham was enough. And then one time along the way, he realized that's not enough. Just because you're Jewish, you won't get into heaven anymore because you're a Tennessean, you get into heaven. I haven't think God loves Tennesseans more than he loves anybody in the world. He saved one, you know. But the fact of the matter is, that doesn't cut it. It has to be something different and unique. And the unique thing is, you have to be born into God's family. And that comes by a whole different process. Here's the problem, as I see it in chapter number 9. These Jews would say, we can't really believe we're secure as God's chosen people when we, in fact, have been set apart because Paul the Apostle is going over here and dealing with all these Gentiles. And I think that's part of the problem. It smacks at God's word being true. It smacks at God's character being under reproach. And what they didn't understand and have not seen is there's a difference between the election of an individual in chapter 8 and the is in the election of a nation in chapter 9. And that's what chapter 9 is dealing with. It's not dealing with individual Jews in chapter 9. You're dealing with individuals in chapter 8. When you come to chapter 9, you're talking about a whole nation. And Paul's going to explain to these people in this chapter who it is, in fact, who's elected, who it is who's been chosen, who it is, in fact, that's really unique in the sight of God and has that exciting relationship. So what he starts out with, he's got to plead his case to be heard of them because it's obvious to them the apostle Paul was a traitor. And it won't take you long to read the New Testament until you'll find that out. But look, if you would, Romans chapter 9, verse number 1. He's pleading with them for in, in, in sincerity. He says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. So what you have here is Paul trying to assure these Jewish people who are listeners and those who be reading or hearing this message in Rome, to assure these Jews that he is sincere when he's telling you, and what he's telling them is the absolute truth, And he wants them to embrace this truth that he's going to share with them along the way. Now, I would remind you, as I remind myself, that as uh, Paul encountered the Jewish community in his journey, in fact, I call the the latter chapters of the book of Acts the the journal of Jewish hatred. Uh, If you don't believe that, let me show you. Look if you would. First off, look at chapter number 21 of Acts. Acts 21. Look at verse number 30. Acts 21 and verse number 30. Acts 21 and verse 30, here's what Luke writes. Acts 21:30. And all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith doors were shut. And as they were about to what? Kill him. Now, I'll tell you something. You don't usually go around killing your friends. You don't go around beating up on people who are, who you really appreciate. These folks not only hated him, they wanted to kill him. Verse 31, and it says... Tidings came unto the chief captain of the band, and all Jerusalem was in an uproar. That is, as it were, a police officer. And he says, Who immediately took the soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating off Paul. They were scared they'd be in trouble themselves, so they quit beating him. Verse 33, Then the chief captain came near. And uh, we'll skip on down to verse 35. It says, And when he came up on the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. I mean, they had to have him a, a, a soldier escort to keep this guy from being beaten to death by this crowd of Jews. Verse 36. For the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. Same thing they did about with our Lord. I mean, they hated this man, Apostle Paul, but that's not all. Look over to chapter number 22. Look at chapter 22 and verse number 21. Chapter 22 of Acts, verse number 21. And he said unto me, Depart, for I have sent thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Now notice, Verse 22, they gave him audience until this word. (laughs) I mean, here he is. He just says Gentiles. And they said, get the sticks and kill the guy. I mean, they heard him well up to then. Boy, I mean, as soon as he's talking about all the things that were good and a blessing that were going to come, and then he mentions the fact he's a Gentile preacher. And they said, kill him. Let's get this guy. And it lifted up their voices and said, what did they say? Away with such a fellow from the earth. I mean, this is not just to get rid of him out of our sight. Now, let's get let's put him off the planet. We don't want this guy around anywhere. This hatred ran deep. Look at chapter 23. Chapter 23, look at verse 12. In 23, verse 12, Luke writes to us, he says, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together, bound bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. These guys made a covenant. They made, as it were, a conspiracy agreement. Look, we're not going to eat and we're not going to sleep until we kill this Gentile preacher. He's got to be done away with. You can read further in that. Verse number 13, they were more than 40, which made this conspiracy. Verse 14, they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul the apostle. Look over then to chapter number 25. Chapter 25 of the book of Acts. Look at verse 24. Acts 25 and verse number 24, And Festus said, King Agrippa, all men which are here present with us, ye see this man about whom all the multitude of Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. And his testimony is, it said uh, this officer of this king is saying, look, these people have been coming to me. they trying to get me to pass some kind of, of a statement on this guy because they want this guy killed. And they're pushing me to do this. They don't want him to live any longer. My point is, the Jews realize faced up the fact, from their perspective, Paul the Apostle was a traitor. It's interesting, he was Jewish, but he was a preacher to the Gentiles. And their assumption of that was, evidently, that the, the Jews were then set aside. There was no use for them anymore. There was no hope for them anymore, because Paul had turned, and Paul was known as the great Gentile preacher. So here's the problem, and Paul the Apostle has to deal with it. Before he can deal with the problem, he has to get them to listen to it. And that's why he starts out chapter number 9. Now listen, folks, he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Uh, I'm a preacher, and I like to look for things that are alliterated. And you ought to see the three C's that he calls on in verse 1 to verify that he's telling the truth. The first one is obvious, Christ. When he calls, he says, I say the truth in Christ, it's the same thing as calling God as a witness, because Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. It's like God saying to people, I tell you the truth, God being my witness, this is the truth. That's what Paul was saying. The second thing that he says, I lie not, my conscience, my conscience bearing me witness. Chapter number 23 of the book of Acts, Paul earnestly beholding the counsel said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this very day. Paul guarded his conscience like he guarded guard a gold mine. Paul the apostle had a clean, clear conscience, and it was a certification of what he would tell you to be absolute truth. So he called on Christ as his witness. He called on his conscience as his witness. And the third place, the verse says, Bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. We know that from the passage in John chapter 15 that the Holy Spirit was called the Comforter. And the Comforter was called the Spirit of Truth. So the ideal is that Paul was saying the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, which God has come sent to us, he bears witness because he is the truth that I'm telling you the truth. And his point made about that is, if you were listening to something that I was saying in this age, this day, in this time, and it were not the truth, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would make you aware that that's not the truth. And he said, so I call him to witness that he will right here, I, he bears witness in the context of this, that I am telling you the absolute truth, what I'm going to share with you. Then verse number two, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. So the first thing he says, I'm honest and I'm genuine. So all these three, Christ, my conscience, and the Comforter, would bear witness that when I tell you I have great sorrow, I'm not putting on a front. I'm not making a parade of this thing. I'm not putting on a drama show here. I am sincere when I tell you this. And why would Paul be so burdened, and why would it be that Paul the Apostle would have such sorrow of heart and so forth? To get that, I think you look at chapter 10, verse 1. He said in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You see, I believe with all of my heart, what Paul is saying is he has a great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart for the salvation of souls. And in this case, his Jewish kinsmen. He's saying that it's the most important thing. Uh, you can be rich and retire and enjoy life until you die. That's wonderful. But unless you have christ you don't have enough you can have everything else in the world but unless you have christ you don't have enough and by the way if you have christ i don't care what else you have in the world you have enough and i say to you this morning that that's really what the apostle paul is saying here he's saying look these people don't have christ and you should understand this and this is not intended in any sense of the word to be a profile purpose person statement The Jewish people were well known to be the the shakers and bakers in the society. And they were the people who made goods, and they they sold them, and they, they were people who made products, and they sold them. They were people who were in business, and they made money. And the whole point of the matter is that the Apostle Paul says, that's wonderful and good that they have all this ability, but they don't have Christ. And so there's something lacking in them, and it's lacking so bad that I personally am of great sorrow about it because I realize what it is to be lost. Paul the Apostle was on the Damascus Road when he came to faith in Christ. And the truth of the matter is of all the people in the world to know how bad it is to be lost as a Jew, Paul the Apostle would. I mean, here's a guy and next week we we talk about priceless privileges next Sunday morning. Priceless privileges. And that's what you get when you read verse 4, 5, and verse number 6. When you get into this, it tells you all the privileges that, that the Jewish people had, but they didn't have Jesus Christ and Paul says for that reason I'm a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart because that's the most important thing and if you don't have that I don't care what else you have it's interesting to me that we could come from such a high mountaintop experience in Romans chapter 8 when Paul has just gone through in chapter 8 where he talks about nay and all these things were more than conquerors and nothing shall separate us from the love of God it's almost like a crescendo we end the chapter 8 on and you come to chapter 9 the first thing you know you're down in the pits of depression almost why because we're looking at two different things in chapter 8 you're looking at the security of the believer that cannot be separated from the love of god you come over to chapter 9 and you're looking at people who are already separated from god they don't know god they don't know christ they're not in a right relationship with him and that's as a nation now remember it's a national thing not an individual thing so paul the apostle says this is a great sorrow to me my heart aches over this matter and if you didn't think, if you think it just is a slight kind of, I'm upset, wish they'd get saved, and that'd be good, I guess. If you think it's that kind of mundane attitude, I've got news for you. You've got to read the rest of the passage. But before we do, let me remind you of something else. There, There's a situation when I read Paul's writings here in chapter 9, I always think of our Lord. And that is when he stood, and let me read it to you. I, I think it just is better to read. Look at Luke chapter 19. You know it, you know it well, but it, that's what my job is, is to put you in remembrance of the truth of God's Word. Here in Luke chapter 19, the passage is, and it begins in verse 41. And the Bible says in Luke nineteen forty-one, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the day shall come upon thee and thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee around and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. My point here, the passage is, our Lord did not weep often and he did not often weep openly, but he did hear. And the reason is very simple. It's the same reason Paul was under such sorrow heart these people do not know that the Lord has paid them a visit they do not understand that God has worked in their behalf to bring them to a right relationship with himself they're blinded to that they don't see that and consequently under the context of this idea Paul the apostle is saying it breaks my heart God's done so many things for people of Israel he's worked in so many miracles and of all the peoples of the world who should know and understand the hand of God when they see it it ought to be them and Paul says, my heart's broken for this because they do not know that. And it gets worse. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul not only is saying, I to say the truth in Christ. Verse 1, I lie not. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Ghost. And it is over the fact that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Verse 3, why, Paul? For I could wish that myself were accursed from. And you need to underline the word from there. Because you see in chapter 8, it's the ideal of being separated from the love of God. And Paul the Apostle in this verse of Scripture is saying, I could wish, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is telling you, he's telling me, that uh, in this context he could wish himself absolutely accursed. The word in the Greek carries with it the ideal of, of something that is, is set apart or condemned Often set apart with the ideal of some useless purpose, ungodly purposes, and the ideal of curse carries with it the ideal of condemnation. The point here made: if the apostle Paul would say to us, "I could wish myself to go to hell for my Jewish family," that's what he said. Now you think about that just for a moment: to be a curse from Christ. And I wonder if we'd have any volunteers this morning to say, "Look, if you can guarantee me." If you can guarantee me that if I would give up my seat in heaven, that I would take their seat in hell for someone I love dearly. You'll forgive me, but I doubt we have many takers. That's no small statement. That's no small thing. By the way, our Lord said over in John chapter 15, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is bigger. This is not just dying this is being eternally dead in hell. So Paul's not just saying, hey, I'll give my life to you guys. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to go as a missionary and I'm going to preach and teach and wear myself out and die on the battlefield of Christ. I'm going to do that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm willing to take a place in hell if you keep one of them out of there. In fact, it would suggest verse number three, could wish myself were a curse from God for my brethren. And is maybe a whole bunch of them. If, you could, if you'll save Israel, I'll go to hell. You save my kinsman, I'll go to hell. That's the deal. That's what he's saying. Or he says, I could. And what's important about this is, this is written in the imperfect tense. And that is, I could wish. There are biblical reasons why he could not. Romans chapter 8 is just one of them. But once you know Christ, I don't care what you feel about it, you cannot be separated from the love of God. And if I ever dug up, Trench deep. I dug it deep when I preached through that one. It took so many sermons to get that thing down. That I don't care what you feel, what you think, and what you wish you could do. You can't be separated from the love of Christ. And this is an excellent point. Paul could have said, I could have done. It. I could wish. That maybe be in my heart. That might be my desire. But God would overrule and say, you can't do that because nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even the love you have for family that you wish could get saved and go to heaven with you. Nothing you can do to change that. And on top of that, God would never allow it. Because no man could ever take the place of another man. Because in this case, Paul the Apostle was a sinner himself when he came to faith in Christ. Sinners can't save sinners. To save a sinner, you have to be a Savior who's sinless, spotless. And there can't be any blemish in you in your character. You have to be holy and you have to be perfect. There's not a lot of candidates. Yea, there are no candidates. There was only one Savior. It was the Lord Jesus Christ so set apart by the virgin birth and the declaration of the heaven's angels and god wanted it to be so so you know he's different he's not your run of the stream jew he was different unique and absolute by the way here's a couple of things you ought to keep before you this is always an encouragement to me and it starts out in philippians chapter 1 and verse number 22 philippians chapter 1 and verse 22 and somebody said this before i read it so i mean meaning before i ever would repeat it somebody wrote it down and i picked it up years ago and i and I've thought about it, and they're absolutely right. Someone rightly pointed out that Paul was willing, listen to me, Paul was willing to stay out of heaven for the sake of the saved. You follow me? Paul was willing to stay out of heaven for the sake of saved people. And the Bible says so. Philippians chapter 1, verse 22. Paul writes, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, technically far better for me. Verse 24, Philippians 1, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. What's that to say but accept? Paul saying, look, I, I would rather go on to heaven. And by the way, I've said the same thing. I, boy, I'd like to go home to heaven today. I'd like to go today. This would be a great day to go. And that's the day usually when I've got 1,563 problems that I can't solve, or at least I've only got 1,000 answers to 1,064 questions. Fact of the matter, I'm sure everybody said that one time. I'd like to go to heaven. Paul said, I'd love to go. That'd be far better for me. But Paul says, look, I'm willing to not go to heaven right now to help you Christians be more of what God wants you to be. That's what Philippians 1 says. And then when you come to Romans chapter number 9, he's willing to go to hell for the sake of the lost. Isn't that amazing? Here's a guy willing to say, look, I won't go to heaven right now because I got some Christian brethren I need to help and to mature and disciple, and so I'll stay. It'd be far better for me to go, but I'm going to stay because they need me. And then he turns right around in Romans chapter 9 and says, look, I'm willing to go to hell if it would save my brethren. Now look, we all know, and as I pointed out already, that couldn't happen. It's not possible. But I think what is important to note here is the fact that that's all be the passion that everybody in this room would have if you know Christ yourself. See, I think we don't understand maybe because we're so close to the forest we can't see the trees. But I don't think we can understand how great a man the Apostle Paul was in that he loved his people and was willing to give up so much to reach them with the gospel. I believe paul better than most would understand what hell really is i believe paul would understand that going to hell is not a party and it would not be as so many pagans often refer to us and reply to us when we say do you know christ is savior and they say no do you understand the bible teaches that all that reject christ in this life spend eternity in hell do you understand that or in the lake of fire forever do you get a hold on that and they say i don't know i got a bunch of buddies and we're going to go there and we're just going to have a big party See, I think the whole idea is our society is sort of twisted what the Scriptures say. I challenge you in Luke 16 where it talks about hell, you find me one reference to a party there. You find me one Greek word that applies, suggests, or encourages you to believe that you're going to have a good time in hell. You find me one. But if I were to show you verses or passages or references of that text to point out the horrors of it, I think I can point to many. In hell, he lifts up his eyes being in torments. And I'm telling you what, I cannot imagine anything of being in a place where the scriptures say, where the worm dieth not. Worm dieth not. Well, either way, if you interpret that as a green or a a, a red worm out here in the grass when it rains and they come out of the ground and cover our parking lot, if you think it's that kind of worm, then that's fine. That's no problem. But that worm does not die in hell. Or if you think that word worm, as some do, as I suggest, that it has something to do with your mental thinking and the references made to the brain and your comprehension of things, I believe what the Scripture is saying. In hell, you'll know every single thing, and yet you'll keep on knowing it, and you won't be able at any point to give up the feelings of it. Now, if you believe that, I cannot imagine there being one respite of a moment in hell to say, This is good. We're having a blast. And I might add, nobody ever sent a postcard from hell and said, we're having a great time, wish you could be here. But I do know of a case where a man who went there said, would you send somebody to my brethren? I have five of them, and I do not want them to come here. Go tell them. You see, my friend, I think what's very clear here is Paul had a grip on this that we somehow don't. I suspect if we really had a grip on the fact that people burn in hell, I suspect we would not sit so comfortably day in and day out with our faith so embundled in our hearts and kept there by quietness and security we'd probably be thinking of hearing the crying and the screaming the echoes in hell and our hearts would probably not let us rest i believe why paul had such a clean clear conscience was because paul was aware of those truths and those realities and they kept his conscience so crisp and sharp that the apostle paul didn't want anything to in any way negate his impact and his power in preaching, teaching, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say to you this morning, I don't know of anybody who'd say what the Apostle Paul said here, unless unless it was an Old Testament character, one that the Jews knew well. Look if you would in your Bible, Exodus chapter number 32. Exodus chapter number 32. I'm not so sure, but why this is why Paul said what he said. Exodus chapter number 32 is a story you may recall of, of Moses and being on the mountain <clears throat> with our Lord about getting the, the, uh, the uh, law and, and, and chapter number 32 talks about the golden calf that was there. Here in chapter 32 it starts verse 1. Exodus 32, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us for as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. Let's get down to verse uh, verse 7. Exodus 32, 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people which thou brought us up or out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, by the way, you talk about a good verse for omniscience. This is it. You get the picture. God's up on the mountain with, with Moses and they're conversing. And God says, just like a thought comes to his mind, as if all thoughts had to, they're always there. God knows everything from beginning to end. God says to Moses, you know what's going on down the camp? And Moses could say, I have absolutely no idea. I'm up here with you. You're God. I'm just Moses. I don't have a clue what's going on. Let me tell you what's going on down there. Those guys down there are corrupting themselves. Once you get back down there, look at verse number uh, 8. He says, and they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And uh, isn't that pretty common? So many people turn so quickly out of the way which the lord shows them we can have people make all kinds of com- commitments and promises and it seems almost by the next sunday we got to work on it all over again that's why the bible talks about in the new testament epistles so often of putting the brethren in remembrance we forget so easily and you don't have to have alzheimer's to do that we just have a moral imperfection in us that causes us to put so many other things ahead of what god wants to be first and because we do we forget to do the right thing and that's exactly what they did verse 8 they have turned aside quickly out of the way which i commanded them they have made them a molten calf have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said these be thy gods o israel which have brought thee up out of the land of egypt verse number nine verse number nine says and the lord said unto moses i have seen this people And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Verse 10, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Verse 11, And Moses besought the Lord with his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? By the way, you ought to note this. Brother Earl and I mentioned this after Wednesday night service. I was telling him what I was going to be preaching. And I was telling him and commenting about this text. Look, if you would, at verse number 7. In verse 7, the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for, note the phrase, for thy people. And you ought to underline that. Verse number 7, God says to Moses, For thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Then look down at verse number 11. And Moses besought the Lord. Now Moses is speaking, his God, and he said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against who?" people <laughs> Lord these aren't mine they are yours and uh, Moses just want to make sure we know who who's who's or who you know I every time I read it I laugh I say Moses saying they're not mine they're yours you may put me in charge but they're still yours and I say to you this was going back and forth, the Lord said no Moses they're yours and here's what I'm gonna do Moses said, no they're not mine they're yours and you can do whatever you want to with them. You're sovereign. You can do absolutely whatever you wish and choose in this case. Look, if you would, further down in verse number 31. Exodus 32, 31. Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold." You notice Moses didn't go in there and try to make a bunch of excuses. He was straight up. He comes back before the Lord and he said, God, they have sinned. And they've done a horrible thing. They have sinned badly, horribly. Verse 32. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin. Now, won't you see, if you have an English Bible that's typical, what comes after sin? Not a word, but what little, uh, what, what do you call that? What is that? It's a dash. In the Hebrew writings, when that happened, the idea was that he didn't finish what he was going to say. That's as far as he could go in that. He said, yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, it's as if, he didn't finish that statement. He stops off in verse 32 and says, Oh, and by the way, if not, just go ahead and blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Just write me off. If you're not going to forgive them, then you can take my name out of the book of forgiveness. I'm, I'm off the list, too. Same thing the Apostle Paul would say over Romans chapter 9. If you, Lord, if you will, you forgive these people, but if you will not, then just take me off the list. Because the ideal is it's an interesting thing and an amazing thing to me. Look at verse number 31. In verse 31, the statement saying after that dash and so forth, what amazes me is he's making the point that he'll make of them a, a great people. I mean, he's saying to them that uh, I want you to know, Moses, that I'm willing to start all over again. We won't have to worry about these guys. We won't have to deal with them. What we will do is I will start all over and I will make of you a great people and we will just go about business. Moses says, no, I don't want a new people. These are thy people that you entrusted to me to get out of Egypt and I've done that. I want you to forgive these people. Uh, Let me tell you, it's obvious to me why God was so angry. (laughs) It's obvious. I mean, it's conspicuous why he was so angry. Uh, it amazes me to this end. You see, you just given the uh, Ten Commandments back over in Exodus chapter 20. Look quickly, if you would. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Look at, uh, well, begin with verse 1. And let's read through the first five verses. That'll give you the idea. Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments. In verse 1, and God spake all these words, saying, verse number 2. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And what did the people in the camp say? They had made gods and said, You brought us out of the land of Egypt. Right? That's what they said. Verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What did they do? They put new gods or made these images and placed them down At Verse 4, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likenesses of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And that is contrary to what he sees in the camp. They're they're doing all that. They're making these graven images and especially this calf. Verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, am, or thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and upon the children unto the third, fourth generation of them that hate me. Point made is, this is the first five verses in chapter 20, first four of the Ten Commandments, and they had already broken them before they ever got the thing down the hill. I mean, they hadn't even got them down to the camp and looked them over. hadn't even considered them. But they've already destroyed them. They've already knocked all these right off the rock. No wonder God was so angry. And God said, My wrath waxed hot at them. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to mop the whole bunch of them off the face of the earth. And Moses says, God, if you do that, in essence, if you do that, they'll be lost for all eternity. So please forgive them, and if you won't forgive them, take my name out of the book. Simple and sweet. Let me say this to you. Someone correctly said, evangelism has little effect if the evangelist has little love for the people he's trying to reach and they're absolutely right I don't know of anything in the Bible that shows Moses and Paul loving people any more than these two events in their life but I tell you that Moses nor Paul could save these people they cared for because they both were sinners sinners cannot save sinners it takes a savior it takes someone unique as I said in the beginning of the service someone who absolutely is perfect and there was only one of those he walked on water but he also died on the cross And he died there for the sins of the whole world. Isaiah chapter number 53, verse number 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Second Corinthians chapter number 5, Paul wrote, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, Christ was made a curse for us who were condemned. Christ was not condemned because of who he was or what he did. He was condemned, as it were, by the world for one thing, not understanding what he was all about. And what he was all about is the same thing that Paul and Moses was about, caring eternally for mankind to spare them from a devil's hell and to prepare them for an angelic heaven. This morning I say to you that here in this service that you need to consider this factor. One, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? If someone asks you on what are you depending to go to heaven, If you're depending on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Him alone, let me let you in on a secret that will save you and spare you some heartache later. You cannot make it to heaven without the Lord Jesus Christ being your Savior. It does not matter what you say you do religiously. You need to understand this principle of the Scripture. You do not go to heaven because you're good. And you do not go to hell because you're bad. Now, I know the evening news is full of that idea, but that's not true. People go to heaven because Jesus Christ died on the cross, and we placed our faith in him to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what gets us to heaven. Why do you go to hell? Why does anybody go to hell? Well, they don't have to, is the first thing. People go to hell because they don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They don't believe Christ is sufficient to get them there. They think that's too easy. That's too simple. But that is exactly what the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now let me tell you something. Don't you understand that if it were something other than God's son that saved that verse would say, for God so loved the world that he gave them all the other things they needed to be saved other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the verse is talking about being saved and having eternal life. God would be absolutely unfair and incorrect to offer us all the other stuff when he full well knew it doesn't save you. For God so loved the world that he gave everybody the ability to keep five of the ten commandments. Was that going to save you? No, but it's good you got five of the ten That may be good, but it's not enough. It's not enough. You could keep all ten of them and still go to hell. Listen to me. There are people who have probably been whisked away from the moment of birth. They've never seen a a television program with all of its cursing and wickedness. They've never smoked a cigarette. They've never drunk uh, uh, any liquor. They've never shot drugs. They've never cursed in their life. They don't chew and they don't run with those who do. And they've just been perfect people hiding off in some monastery somewhere. Let me tell you something. If you'd never sinned a day in your life, you still wouldn't go to heaven. For one reason. Because there's a verse in the New Testament, it's in the book of Romans, and we've hit it up, I don't know, exaggerated statement, maybe 50 times. But if you never get another verse from this preacher, be sure you never forget this one. It is Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. I said it then, I say it now, that's the reason babies die. Babies die because babies are sinners. Does that mean they do sin? Did they rob banks? Did they get drunk? No. They're sinners by birth. We're all born sinners. And you do what you do because of what you are. If you're going to change what you do, you've got to change what you are. And that only happens with what the Bible calls a new birth. You have to be born again. Marvel not, he said to Nicodemus, John 3, Ye must be born again. He didn't say, Marvel not, Nicodemus, you must keep the Ten Commandments, ten church three times a week, give a tithe of everything you've ever earned, and you've got to live at the church. He didn't say that. He said, There's one thing you'll have to do. You'll have to be born again. And in that process is the belief on the Lord Jesus Christ as your only Savior. Not Jesus Christ plus, but Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Him alone is certain salvation, but not Christ plus. So I ask you a simple question. If you were to die in the seats that you're sitting on now, graveyard dead, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt That Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. Has there been a time in your life where you said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I do what I do because of what I am. And I know I'm going to keep on doing what I do because I'm not changed. If I don't change, and then you said I've tried turning over new leaves. In fact, I've turned over enough leaves to make a volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and it hadn't changed a thing. And it won't. Because the change has to be from heaven. That's why it's called being born from above, not from beneath. Being born once will get you into this world. Being born twice, it will take to get you into heaven. Nothing else will work. And you'll get frustrated trying. And you'll get mad at churches, and you'll get mad at religion in general. But it won't do you any good. It still won't work. There's only one thing that works if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And you can be saved this morning if you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. I hope you will. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the opportunity we have to have copies of it that we can hold and study and read and think upon and meditate on. We're grateful for that. And we're honored by that and we'll be held accountable for that. This is no small privilege of ours to have the copy of the scriptures in our hands. But we should not take it lightly because we shall give an account for it. That's obvious. It's a benefit. It's a blessing. No greater blessing than the fact that it reveals to us what true salvation is. So this morning in this place I ask for you to bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour in the lives of men, women, boys, and girls who maybe came in here without Christ as their personal Savior or they were uncertain of that. And now they've come to understand that they are not saved, they're not right with Thee. And they realize they need a Savior. And they need counsel from Your Word to make that decision this morning. I pray as we sing the invitation song in just a moment of Just As I Am, I pray they'll come just as they are. And they allow someone to take a Bible and show them how to be saved. Or they, right there in their seats, will talk to you, Father, and they'll tell you that they are a sinner. They've come to understand that this morning by the Holy Spirit's conviction. And they, this morning, recognize that Christ is the only Savior. They're not a lot. They're not many. There's only one. And they understand that they're a sinner, and they need right here, right now, to bow in your presence and confess, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I know you're the only Savior. And right here, right now, I believe on you. To be my Savior personally and save me for Christ's sake. I pray, Father, today, that you may speak to hearts and work in lives to that end, and several may come to this decision this hour. I pray you'll speak to us through the service and continue to do so as we go about this day. And may we hide your word, your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? If you need a hymn book, you turn to two hundred eighty-two in the hymn book. 282 just as I am if God has spoken to your heart this morning and you need further counsel concerning your trust in Christ as Savior we'd be delighted to talk with you or one of the men of our church with men or the lady of our church with the ladies we'd be glad to counsel you from God's word as we often say you can be saved standing in a pew coming down an aisle won't save you it's just that coming down here we can give you counsel from the scriptures if you need it and we'd be honored to do it but the decision is yours and the invitation is open whatever God has said to you And we want to help you carry it out and fulfill it in this hour, in this service. As we sing, 282 verse 1, together please. Just as I am without one gleam. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? you'll close your eyes and bow your head for a moment we'll be out of here momentarily i'm going to ask the instruments to play one more verse of the song and while they're going to play this i'm going to ask you a simple question while your heads are bowed if you're here this morning and you'd say pastor henry i have heard the message and i have come to understand that i'm not saved if i were to die right here i don't believe i'd go to heaven But I want to go to heaven and I want you to pray for me that I'll get this matter settled once and for all. Please pray for me. First off, I'll tell you I'm not going to embarrass you and I'm not going to point you out. I probably don't know who you are anyway. But the point is I do want to pray for you and I promise you I will. So if God has spoken to your heart this morning in this service and you say, Yes, preacher, pray for me when you pray that I will be saved and soon. Would you just lift your hand put it in the air and then take it down? Anyone like that? Say, I know I'm not saved and I want you to pray for me that I'll come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone like that? Pray for me this morning. Anyone? Say, preacher, I'm saved. I know I'm on my way to heaven, but I want you to pray for me. that God's spoken to my heart about matters, some of which you may have addressed, maybe you didn't even touch upon this morning, but God has spoken to my heart on some matters and I need to address them and I need to deal with them, please pray for me that I will. Pray for me today. Would you do that? Just put it up. God bless you god bless you god bless you sir and you sir you ma'am and you ma'am and you sir may the lord bless you and may the lord help you to carry out those things for which he has addressed our father in heaven we thank you for the ministry of your word we're fully aware and cognizant of the fact that you use your word your spirit directs it to our hearts and you give us direction for our lives from it and therefore we ask you father now to direct the steps and the decision and the actions of these people who lifted their hands. We pray for them that your spirit may give them the grace, strength, ability, direction for the life's decisions they must make. Pray you'll be with them and bless them and minister to them personally. And Father, I pray again for the truth that we've heard both from Sunday school and worship service and we'll hear from the evening service message. I pray that you'll take this and help us to abide by it as it would be your pleasure and your will. Help us to become more like thee with every Work and effort and putting forth of any kind of pursuit of obedience to you. May we be conformed more and more to your character and likeness, and may people see the Lord Jesus Christ in us. Thank you again for all of our guests here this morning. We're grateful for them. Please bless them and pray, Father, you'll be with them in a very special way in the days they have left at Camp Atterbury. Or you'll be with them and bless them as they'll have a noon meal with us here at the church for your blessing on them. And pray for all of our visitors who are here today as they go their way. I pray you'll give them safety and protection and bring them back to our services again real soon. Bless our patch young people and Brian Elaine as they share with the church tonight. With the Patch the Pirate program and pray for your blessing on that. pray you'll bless Brother Mike as he opens the scriptures to us. Prepare his heart even now for that and ours too to receive it. And again we pray for Ross Thompson that you'll touch and heal Ross and minister to him in a very special way. And get him back here to us soon. Bless now as we go from this place and we we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.